Good morning, church. Hi, Dean. Dean uh, tried to run me over at Walmart yesterday, which was pretty much sums up who Dean is. Um, I love you, Dean. Today, if you have your Bible, please open up to the book of Romans. Uh, we're going to be we're going to be trekking through a, a large chunk of Romans today, but don't worry, because as most of you know, and to the dismay of most of the Sunshine teachers, I have yet to preach a long sermon. I actually I actually walked in our high school class this morning, and and Nick Peckham pointed out that I'm I'm dressed nicer. This is nice for me. Um, but Reagan Kennedy goes, "Yes, Robbie's preaching. Sunshine's going to be short." So. That might change today. We'll see. Uh, before we dive into Romans, I want to introduce to you an idea called the Mandela Effect. Basically, it is defined as an instance of collective misremembering. Let me explain. The Mandela Effect started and gets its name from when someone discovered that she shared a particular false memory with other people. That false memory was that South African rights activist and president Nelson Mandela died in prison during the 1980s. They discovered this when he actually died in 2013. So she started to realize that a lot of people from different places that she had no association with also thought Nelson Mandela died in prison during the 1980s. Well, this ended up developing into a huge phenomenon, and it got a lot of people buzzing on the Internet. The Mandela Effect came to my attention sometime early last year when people started talking about a genie movie that Sinbad the Entertainer starred in during the 90s. And I threw a picture up there because I'm sure most of our kids have no idea who Sinbad the Entertainer is. Not a great name for church. I understand that. The movie was called Shazam. I remember seeing this movie as a kid. Here's the problem. This movie never existed. So I did some research for a couple days because I was, I was so sure that Sinbad did a movie called Shazam, and there is no proof anywhere that this movie was made. Uh, Sinbad himself has come out and said that he never did a genie movie. And I had to stop because I began to fry my brain. I, I just couldn't believe that a movie I swore I saw as a kid never actually existed. Now, there's probably a few reasons uh, for why I remember this movie. For starters, Sinbad was in a lot of different family movies during the 90s. But the biggest one is that there's actually a real movie called Kazam, where Shaquille O'Neal played a genie. So more than likely, something in my head combined these two things to create a false memory that was triggered when other people started talking about a genie movie called Shazam with Sinbad in it. So this that false memory became a reality for me. Therefore, it became a fact in my head. And on some level, to this day, I still believe that that movie exists, even though it doesn't. Let's look at the Mandela effect uh, in our Christian walk. There might be something we believe that we know for sure is taught in the Bible. And we believe this because we hear a lot of people talk about it. We know people that believe the same thing that we believe, or it's just something that we've always been taught. A lot of people believe this So it must be true. But when we dig into scripture and we dig into context and we allow the spirit to guide us as we read, we begin to realize that that belief we may uh, may have is not actually biblical. 
We've all probably experienced the moment when we're listening to a sermon or reading a book and everything just suddenly clicks and we see things in a brand new way. What I want to talk to you about today is a corrected false belief I had up until about five or six months ago. Uh, For a lot of you, this is just going to be a reminder with hopefully a, a few new things for you to chew on. But I have a feeling for a good number of you, this is going to be revolutionary. Now, I know that sounds a little arrogant, and I don't mean it to be, uh, because I, I do actually have a little bit of proof for this statement. I put an, I put an anonymous survey on Facebook a few a few weeks ago, and, and here are the results. Uh, if, you would, if you were to die right now, or if I were to die right now, I believe, and I know this is hard to see, but only 60% of people believe that they without a doubt would go to heaven. The other three choices are, I'm pretty sure I would go to heaven, but I have some doubt. Uh, We can't be sure, only God can decide that. And I don't believe I would go to heaven. Thankfully, uh, as you can kind of see, that no one put on there that they don't believe they would be going to heaven. But only 60% of people are totally secure in their salvation, and that is way too low. So today, as I said earlier, Uh, We're going to trek through the first part of Romans so we can talk about why we can be secure in our salvation. Uh, Romans is such a densely well-designed letter penned by Paul, and it's such a beautifully written argument for why we are justified by faith alone. Uh, this This would be equated to Paul writing a dissertation on the subject, especially the first eight chapters, uh, which is why I want to go through those. Because if we only look at part of what, of what he's saying, we won't understand all the points Paul is making. So let's dive in. Paul starts the letter, as he usually does, by introducing himself. Then he quickly moves on to a prayer of thanksgiving for the church in Rome. Uh, then we come to what could be equated as Paul's thesis statement for his entire argument. For I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, the Jew first, and then also the Gentile. The good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the scripture says, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. Now that's a pretty bold statement, and Paul's going to spend the next seven and a half chapters explaining not only why this is true, but what it means for us. Uh, and just as a side note, we're not going to be going, uh, we're not going to be reading every verse in Romans. I'm going to be giving some quick summaries and, and just reading, uh, reading some of the verses. Paul starts his argument by talking about how from the very beginning, we as created beings have run away from God. But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky, though every, everything God made they, uh, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give thank- him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, They worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptile. Let's talk about the wrath of God for a minute because because a lot of people don't want to talk about it. 
I know people that just want to completely take out the notion that the wrath of God is a real thing, but I think we've misunderstood what the wrath of God is. This isn't a reactionary anger where God is upset because he got his feelings hurt. No, this is a deep concern for all the evil that occurs in this world. God made a perfect creation with his fingerprints all over the place. So as Paul says, we are without excuse to know there is at least a higher power who created everything. But we suppress the truth. Because naturally, we don't like there to be a higher power that tells us what, we, uh, what to do because we want to choose for ourselves what we can do. So Paul says this in verse 24. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. God is not going to force us to worship him. But God is also not okay with letting people run around and doing whatever they want to do. And realize that in this moment, God could say, I'm done, and let his creation destroy his creation. And that's what seems to happen. Paul finishes chapter 1 by explaining all the wicked things that humans did and still do. He finishes this thought by saying this. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. God's wrath, God's anger, is not is that even though he is poured so much of his love into his creation, they still rebelled against him. Paul begins with God's wrath because this is the foundation of his argument. We are naturally wicked. We naturally rebel against God. Therefore, we have no hope, or so it seems. Paul starts chapter 2 by, uh, by taking a bit of a term. You may think that you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad, and you have no excuse. When you say they are wicked, they should be punished. You are condemning yourselves, for you who judge others do the very same thing. Now, at first, this seems like an odd place to go after talking about the judgment of the world, but we have to remember Paul's audience. He is writing to predominantly Jews who became Christians. And since Jews would have had all the background information on God, Paul anticipates that they may puff themselves up a little and think, hmm, yeah, those Gentiles are like that. Thankfully, we Jews have it all figured out. That might sound a little ridiculous, but let's be real for a second. I've done that before. I've thought of myself better than someone else. And I won't ask for a show of hands, but I'm sure the majority of, majority of us have done the same thing. And this is Paul's point. How can I judge other people when I, when I do the exact same things that they're doing? Then Paul goes into something that the Jews would have known a lot about, the law of Moses. And, and basically what Paul says for the rest of the chapter is that the Jews know the law, they teach the law, they talk about how great the law is, but they don't even keep it. They teach people that this is what the law says and these are the things that we should do, but then they don't even do what the law says to do. And so Paul uses some harsh language in a, right here. You are so proud of knowing the law, but you dishonor God by breaking it. No wonder the scripture says the Gentiles blaspheme the name of God because of you. I mean, good grief, Paul. But let's stop for a second. Because someone in here might be thinking, I'm a terrible person. 
I'm just like these Jews. Well, if you're thinking that, then good. You should be. We all should be. This is what point, this is what Paul is trying to do. But remember that Paul is building an argument here. There's a reason he's being a little blunt and harsh. And we're going to get to that in, in just a few minutes. Paul begins chapter three by asking a question that he anticipates the church in Rome is going to ask. Then what advantage, what, then what's the advantage of being a Jew? Is there any value in the ceremony of circumcision? Yes, there are great benefits. First of all, the Jews were entrusted with the whole revelation of God. He just spent the last few minutes putting the Jews down, but now he's on the upward swing of his argument. So he needs to, he needs to butter them up just a little bit. So he says, of course there are great benefits. The Jews were entrusted with the whole revelation of God. But Paul brings the Jews back to reality by saying this. Well then, shall we conclude that we Jews are better than others? No, not at all. For we have already shown that, that all people, whether Jew or Gentiles, are, are people under the power of sin. Okay, at this point, Paul is pretty much beating a dead horse. He's basically saying, do you guys get it? It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. We all sin. We're all messed up, and we don't live up to God's expectations. Then he puts the exclamation point on this part of his argument by saying this. Obviously, the law applies to those whom it was given. For its purposes is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God. For no one can be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. If you're reading Romans for the first time, at this point you're supposed to feel miserable. Paul has accurately described why we are all so wicked. There's no reason we deserve God. And there's nothing we can do to correct that relationship with God. That's a bummer. I mean, I was, I was really feeling pretty good about myself. I thought I was doing all the things that God wants me to do. But apparently, I'm, I'm just worthless. Why in the world would Paul make me feel like this? Paul makes us feel this way because what he says next shouldn't shock our entire system. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. This is the gospel. For everyone has sinned, We all fall short of God's glorious standard, yet God freely and graciously declares that we are all righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus, for when he, for he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. The sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness. For he himself 
is fair and just, and he declares sinners to be right in in his sight when they believe in Jesus. The God whose standard is so high, the God whose standard is his holiness, the God who says we cannot, or the God who knows we cannot reach that standard by trying to be holy on our own, provides a way for us to reach that standard, a way to become holy, and a way to be made right with God. Only by having faith in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. It's not about what we do. It is about who we believe in. This is what grace is all about. We don't deserve God. God should have given up on us. But because of his unwavering love for us, he provided a way. And this changes everything. To illustrate this, Paul uses Abraham as an example in chapter 4. There's actually quite a bit of detail in chapter 4, which I really do encourage you to read later. But the main point are in the first few verses. Abraham was, humanly speaking, the founder of our Jewish nation. What did he discover about being made right with God? If his good deeds had made him acceptable to God, he would have had something to boast about. But that, that was not God's way. For the scripture tells us Abraham believed and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. Okay, let's talk about Abraham for a second. In Genesis 12, we read about Abraham. Uh, then he's called Abram for the first time. Abram is 75 years old when we are first introduced to him. He has lived a long life already before he has an encounter with the Lord. We can strongly make the deduction that Abraham has lived a near pagan life up until this point. He has probably worshipped other gods. He has probably done other rituals to please other gods. So when the Lord comes to Abram, he might just be thinking, This is one of the gods I've been worshiping. They have heard my worship and are reaching out to me. So Abram trusted the Lord, probably thinking he's just one of the other gods, and he has no idea what he's in store for. The Lord promises Abram that he's going to give him the land that he shows him to him and to his descendants. Abram doesn't have any children right now, so all he can do is trust this God, which he showcases by building an altar to the Lord. Because remember, this happens a long time before the law, uh, before God gave the law to Moses. And so Abram did everything perfectly after that. No. He immediately goes down to Egypt and lies about his wife out of fear. He gets impatient with God, God's promise, and has a son with Hagar. He lies again about his wife out of fear. I mean, Abram's a messed up dude. But Paul reminds us that scripture tells us Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. It isn't about Abraham's actions. It's about his faith in God. Now, the verse that Paul uses uh, is from Genesis 15, and I believe there's another reason Paul uses it other than to make his point about Abraham's faith. In Genesis chapter 15, we see God make a covenant with Abraham. And, and what God does seems weird when you read it. Basically, the Lord tells Abram to bring him a few specific animals. Abram, know, uh, Abram 
knows what's going on, so he kills the animals and then cuts them in half. This is weird, but this is the way people would make covenants with each other in the ancient world. Uh, if you don't know what a covenant is, it's loosely kind of like a legal document is today. It's basically just a binding promise, but it actually goes a lot deeper than that. The two people making the covenant would walk between the two halves of the animals and declare that if I should break my promise to you, then let me be like these dead animals. It's a little gruesome, but the imagery does stay with you. So the Lord makes a covenant with Abraham, but, but God does something different. He walks it alone. He causes Abram to fall into a deep sleep and causes him to have a dream that represents the Lord walking through the animals. God makes a covenant with Abram, but doesn't expect any action from Abram in return. Just faith in the Lord. Can you see why Paul would use this? He's trying to show his readers that the new covenant God made with his people through Jesus Christ is not about what we do. It's all about what Christ did. And we have to do, all we have to do is have faith just like Abraham did. Paul starts chapter five by saying this. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. Paul is implying that this should excite us because now through faith alone, we have peace with God. We have undeserved privilege and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. We can stop trying to earn our salvation because it's already been earned for us. And this is what the gospel is all about. Paul continues by saying, we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us, because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. Now, I want to be careful here, because I know a lot of you are going through problems and trials, and I, I don't want to diminish those in, in any way. But Paul does say these trials do happen for a reason. But notice what he doesn't say that reason is. We do not go through hard times because God is upset with us. We do not go through hard times to make us feel guilty because we don't do enough for God. We go through hard times to develop endurance, which leads to a stronger character, which leads to more confidence in our hope of salvation. We go through hard times so that we can gain a better understanding of what it means to trust God, even if that hard time is not resolved the way we think it should be resolved. We ultimately stand secure knowing that God has me and he won't let me go. When we are utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, 
we will certainly save us from God's condemn he will certainly save us from God's condemnation for since our friendship with God has been restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies we will certainly be saved through the life of his son so now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God you remember that false belief i told you i had earlier the one that God has been opening my eyes up to over the past few months. Part of it was my security and salvation, but a bigger part of it was what Paul is talking about right here. I always viewed God as someone who loved me, but honestly more as a, as a disappointed parent. I wasn't doing enough things to please him, uh, and I just always fell short. I always felt like God was just kind of ticked off at me, which, which in a weird way drove me to do more because I, I desperately wanted to please him. This led me to being frustrated with people, led me to being somewhat apathetic, and it led me to an endless cycle of guilt because I wasn't measuring up. But then God reminded me that my faith lies in Jesus Christ. And then he opened my eyes to show me that because of that faith, faith and not by anything I do, I have been made right in God's sight. While I was still God's enemy because of all of my sin, God restored my friendship with him. Some of your versions versions will say reconciled, but the idea is that we now have an intimate friendship with God. If you're struggling with that like I did, uh, let me tell you something. If you believe in Jesus Christ, not only does God love you, he actually likes you. Not some perfect version of you, but the, the you sitting in the pew at this very moment. The God whose standard and expectation is his holiness says, I want to be your friend. All you have to do is believe in my son. Man, isn't God's grace an amazing thing? So how are we doing? Uh, this is a lot of information to absorb in just a, in just a few minutes. I, I understand that we've, we've really zoomed through Romans and, and I hate doing that, but, um, and, and honestly, this would be a good place to end. But I bet there's a couple of questions you have that have been left unanswered. Uh, the main one being, Robbie, it sounds like you're saying that if we believe in Jesus, then we can do whatever we want to do. Is that what you're saying? It would seem that way, wouldn't it? And Paul's argument up until this point uh, would make it sound that way too, but, but Paul understands this. He's doing this intentionally. He's trying to beat into our heads what the, what the main point of the gospel is. It's not about what we do. I don't blame him because I fall into this trap all the time. Satan makes me feel guilty. He makes me feel worthless and makes me feel like I'm not doing enough for God. And I have to remind myself on a daily basis that there is no action I can do to please God, and there is no action I can do to upset God. Now, you may have just heard that, and you may disagree. And I can understand why. Six months ago, I would have disagreed with that statement as well. But I want to show you what Paul tells us about what it means to have faith in Jesus Christ. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. 
Yes, people sinned even before the law was given, but it was not counted as sin because there was not yet any law to break. Still, everyone died from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even those who did not disobey an explicit command of God, as Adam did. Now, Adam is a symbol, a representation of Christ who was yet to come. But there is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. And and the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation, but God's free gift leads to our being made right with God, even though we are guilty of many sins. For the sins of, the, of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who receive it will live and triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Yes, Adam's sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. Because of Adam, sin came into this world. But because of Christ, we now live in triumph over it. What does this mean? It means before we believed in Jesus Christ, we were living in sin. Sin came naturally to us, and we didn't care if we did it. But now that we believe in Jesus Christ, we have victory over sin. This does not mean that you will sin no longer. What this does mean is that God no longer counts your sins against you. My debt has been wiped clean. It's as if somebody paid off my student loans and said, you know what, I'm going to continue to pay for your education for the rest of your life. God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, Now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The law is beneficial to show us how wicked we are, how much we can't measure up. But God's grace is infinitely more beneficial because it shows us that I am no longer wicked, but holy when I have faith in Christ. Grace changes everything. But grace should not be abused. So Paul says this, well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when you were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. But And just as Christ was raised from the dead by his By the glorious power of the Father, now we also live new lives. Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin 
but now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. So this is where it gets really good because it's a very easy logical jump to say, well, if we sin, that makes God's grace more prominent. Then should we just sin as much as we can? Because then God's grace will just be everywhere. But Paul says you're missing the point. Don't you realize that when you were baptized, you died to sin and therefore you were united with Christ? First, let me say, Paul doesn't separate baptism and belief. They go hand in hand. And in the Bible, when someone believes in Jesus, they are immediately baptized. Uh, These two things are not separated like they have unfortunately become in our church culture today. That's another sermon for another day. Realize Paul said when we were baptized, we were united with Christ. We were joined together. This is a huge statement that we do not talk enough about. Not only is our identity in Christ, our identity is Christ. When we believe and are baptized, God no longer sees us. He sees Christ in us. Paul then goes on to finish out chapter 6 and all of chapter 7 to talk about uh, our sin and, and why we don't need to keep the law. And I believe he does this because we don't like the fact that it's not about anything we do. You may be thinking, you just don't understand. I, I just can't overcome this sin. I, I really do believe in Jesus, but I just can't stop sinning like Paul says to. And I don't feel like I do enough for God. I understand. And it's really easy to slip back into a workspace righteousness because we feel guilty. And I, and I truly believe this happens because Satan convinces us that our identity is not Jesus. And he's so crafty. He will slip in all sorts of lies like, Jesus was perfect. You're not perfect. You had a chance to, sell, to tell somebody about Jesus today and you didn't take it. I bet God is so upset with you. You know, if you did more things, if you did more good things for God, he might actually be pleased with you. So we sin. We may have an outburst of anger. We may lie. We may do something worse. And we do this because we forget that our identity is Christ. But here's the great thing. I may have forgotten that my identity is Christ. But God never forgets. As long as we believe in Jesus Christ, my identity, the way God views me, is through the lens of Christ. He no longer sees my flaws. He no longer sees my imperfections. He just sees me as Christ. Now, I want to end by talking about how we grow as Christians, because clearly we aren't perfect people. Uh, God may see us through the lens of Christ, but he also understands that we need to grow. But just as we don't please God by trying harder and we don't upset God by doing less, we also don't grow in Christ by trying to be more like Christ. Now hear me out. It doesn't make sense that God would save us, make us righteous, and become our friends based on nothing we do to completely make a 180 and say, all right, it's up to you now. Are you kidding me? Paul's already established that we are naturally wicked. 
arrogant am I to say, to say, to look at God and just say, thanks for the salvation. Thanks for making me right in your eyes, but I've got it from here. I'm pretty sure I know what it takes to be like Christ. And I can just, I can just imagine God saying, really? Because no one else has figured out how to do it. I mean, that's the whole reason I sent my son so that you wouldn't have to do this on your own. Listen very closely to the last bit of scripture we're going to read today. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong in Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirements of the law would be fully satisfied for us. We no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the spirit. Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things, but those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death, but letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's law, and it never will. That's why those who are still under the control of the sinful nature can never please God. But you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to him at all. And Christ lives within you. So even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives gives you life because you have been made right with God, the Spirit of God, who raised Jesus from the dead, lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same spirit living within you. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. For if you live by its dictates, you will die. But if through the power of the spirit, you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. For all who, have le- for, for all who are led by the spirit of God are children of God. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father, for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share his glory, we must also share in his sufferings. Because I am in Christ, God has sent his spirit to dwell in me, not just to hang out, but to transform me from the inside out. The spirit is constantly convicting me to be more like Christ. The spirit is constantly showing me how to be more like Christ. And the spirit is constantly transforming me to be more like Christ. Through God's grace, he teaches me what it means to obey him. But again, it's not about what I do or who I am. It's purely based on everything he is doing in 
and around me. Now to say some of you won't like this idea. Maybe it seems too good to be true or honestly, on some level, it kind of makes us seem lazy. Well, if I, if God does everything, what am I supposed to do? We are supposed to listen and learn to sit in the presence of God and be his friend. I will tell you that ever since God opened my eyes to this, I have studied more. I have read my Bible more. I've been less frustrated and I've been more excited about teaching and preaching the gospel of God. Not because I pulled myself up by my bootstraps and made myself a better person, but because God broke me down and is making me new. You don't have to agree with me because that's okay. We're allowed to disagree with each other. No two people in this room have the exact same belief on everything. And honestly, I, I don't want you to take my word for it. Go, go study it for yourself. But the gospel is meant to liberate us from our sinful nature and give us a ton of freedom in Jesus Christ so that we can build a relationship with God. God's grace changes me. God's grace changes you. God's grace changes everything. If you've been a Christian for a long time, this, this whole idea is, is new and radical, but you, you feel like there's some kind of truth. I encourage you to start praying for God to open your eyes to show you his grace because it's everywhere and it will pursue you. If you haven't experienced this great yet, you have, a, you have an opportunity to come in a minute and make your identity Christ. You can believe and be baptized today. Uh, we're going to sing the song, His Grace Reaches Me. And it's an older song that we've sung a lot, but I encourage you to really listen to the words today. His grace reaches me. His grace changes everything. If you need that grace or anything else, please come now as together we stand and sing.